Chapter 4 Young Folks' History of the American Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colonel Gary Bohannon. GaryBohannon.com. Young Folks' History of the American Revolution by Everett Tomlinson. The Resort to Arms. Although the events recorded in the preceding chapter occurred at a time earlier than some we have already described, they form a link in the chain that ought not to be forgotten, in spite of the fact that they have been ignored for the most part by those who have written of the Revolution. North and South, East and West, the entire people were becoming more enraged with every passing month. In 1774, the, quote, four intolerable acts of Parliament, unquote, to which reference has already been made, were passed and the effect of them was to make even those who had been hopeful of a peaceful issue almost despond. Parliament, which was unaware of the true state of the feeling in the colonies, and was ready to do what the king and his foolish advisers wished, now became angry too, and angry men are fit neither to make laws nor to obey them when they are made. So it happened that the, quote, four intolerable acts, unquote, were passed. The first of these was known as the Boston Port Bill, and forbade all vessels either to enter or leave Boston Harbor. It was confidently expected by the British that this new law would so trouble the New England people, whose commerce, as we know, had all the time been steadily increasing, that they would be brought to their senses, and when their pockets were affected, they would give up their foolish rebellion. Its effect, however, was directly opposite, as it only made the New Englanders still more angry at their rulers. The second act was the Massachusetts Bill, which changed the charter of that colony, taking from the people the right to select their own rulers, and bestowing it upon the agents of King George. The effect of this was to anger all the other colonies as well as Massachusetts, for now no one knew when the same method might be applied to every one. The third act was the Transportation Bill, which ordered that any American who should, quote, commit murder, unquote, in resisting the officers in enforcing the laws of, quote, the gracious king, unquote, should not be permitted to a trial in his home but should be sent across the ocean, and should be tried in England. As everyone thought he knew just what the result of such a trial would be, very naturally the act increased the bitter feeling of every independent man in the colonies. The fourth act was the Quebec Bill, which was to make all of the country east of the Mississippi and north of the Ohio a part of Canada. This act did more than any or all of the others to unite the colonies in the struggle. They had helped to win this very territory from King Louis of France. They had furnished men and means for this war, and more than all, the king himself had given the land to them, and they did not like this taking back a gift once bestowed, which among the colonists was known as, quote, Indian giving, unquote. The excitement of the people now rose to the highest pitch it had as yet attained. So outspoken were many of the assemblies in the colonies that royal governors dismissed them, fearful of what the effect of their bold words might be. But such acts could not quiet the people. By many, the day when the port of Boston was closed was observed as a day of fasting and prayer. Everywhere men were talking of the tyranny of their rulers. And finally, almost as by common consent, a Continental Congress was called to consider what could be done to help the suffering Americans. So it came to pass that the first Continental Congress assembled at Philadelphia, September 5, 1774. Every colony except Georgia had delegates in the body and the people of Georgia were thoroughly in sympathy with the act. Her royal governor, however, had succeeded in preventing the appointment of delegates, and so Georgia was the only colony without representation. 
it was a marvelous gathering of men that met in Philadelphia in that First Continental Congress. Even the leaders of Parliament acknowledged that much, and some of them declared that the debates and papers were superb. Peyton Randolph of Virginia was chosen president of the body, and such men as John Adams, Samuel Adams, George Washington, Lee, Dickinson, and a host of others, whose names are worthy of remembrance, were also there. For four weeks the Congress deliberated and debated with a dignity and seriousness that were worthy of the assembly, and at last, as a result of it all, a new, quote, Declaration of Rights, unquote, was made, and it was declared that the colonies ought to be permitted to govern and to tax themselves. It commended the people of Massachusetts for the stand they had taken, and sent Paul Revere to Salem as the bearer of their message. It drew up an agreement which was called the Articles of Association, whereby the people pledged themselves neither to buy nor to sell goods to England until Parliament should revoke the acts to which attention was called, whereby the rights of the colonies were taken away. Now the cry was changed from, quote, no taxation without representation, unquote, to, quote, no legislation without representation, unquote. And then last of all, after calling for a new session of Congress in the May following, the Assembly adjourned until that time. Benjamin Franklin was sent to England to present the plan of Congress to Parliament, but he was refused permission to speak there, and soon sailed for home without accomplishing anything. Instead of listening to the appeals, Parliament went still farther and forbade the New England fishermen from fishing near Newfoundland. It was also voted to increase the force of regulars at Boston to 10,000 men, and after blaming General Gage for not having done more, William Howe was chosen in his place as Commander-in-Chief of the British forces in America. Howe had boldly declared his opposition to what the King and Lord North were doing. Indeed, he was himself for peace, and all through the long war that followed, Sir William Howe was ever ready to bring the struggle to an end by granting more than his rulers had been willing to yield. But when he was appointed to the new position, he could not refuse to serve and as his brother Richard at the same time was appointed Admiral of the British Fleet in America, the two brothers came across the sea. There is no doubt that Sir William believed that he would be able to bring about a settlement of the troubles, for he came, as Lord North smoothly said, quote, not only with a sword, but also with an olive branch, unquote. How sadly even the good-hearted Sir William Howe was deceived, the events which rapidly followed, proved. Meanwhile, in America, the determination to resist was becoming stronger, particularly in Massachusetts, where it was feared serious trouble would first break out. Men were meeting on the village greens and drilling as soldiers. There was a tension in the very speech of the people. Powder and arms had been collected, and it was understood that 20,000, quote, minute men, unquote, were ready to respond to a, quote, minutes, unquote, call, and march at a, quote, minutes, unquote, warning. These men were sturdy farmers and farmers' boys for the most part, and had become so skillful in the use of their muskets and rifles that as marksmen they were probably much superior to the regulars in the ranks of General Gage in Boston. Of course, they had no uniforms, and when it came to military tactics, the well-disciplined regulars laughed heartily at their awkward movements. Nevertheless, General Gage was in no pleasant frame of mind, in spite of the large number of soldiers in his command. He had come to understand the temper and feelings of the colonists, and openly declared that he must have more men if he was to deal with them successfully, a statement that made Lord North and others of the king's advisers laugh heartily. 
Not for one minute did they conceive of the rough farmer's boys being able to stand before the well-dressed, well-trained, and well-equipped soldiers of King George III. General Gage was so worried, however, that he began to erect fortifications on the neck that joined Boston to the mainland, and as the reports of the doings of the country people became worse, he sent his spies to find out, if possible, just what was going on. When, one time in the spring of 1775, he heard through his spies that the Minutemen had collected a supply of military stores at Concord, a little village about twenty miles distant from Boston. He ordered eight hundred of his regulars to march to the place and destroy all the powder there, and with that order the war of the American Revolution really began. This force was to march very quietly and go in the night. This force was to march very quietly and go in the night, so that the Minutemen might not be able to learn of its plan until it was too late to save their stores. But the friends of the colony were as watchful as the British general himself, and by the time the force had started, the people were aware of what was going on. All through the night, men went riding through the country, stopping at the scattered farmhouses and rousing the inmates with the startling cry, quote, The regulars are coming! Unquote. Signals were also displayed, bells were rung, and when, just at sunrise on the eventful morning of April 19, 1775, the British marched into Lexington, a little village on the road between Boston and Concord. They were surprised to discover about sixty Minutemen assembled there on the village green. Doubtless the Redcoats laughed when they beheld the motley company. They were not very well dressed. Not all of them were armed. And such an idea as that these men would really dare to stand before them never once entered their minds. The leader of these regulars, Major Pitcairn, roughly ordered the, quote, rebels, unquote, to disperse. When to his surprise and disgust he perceived that his command was not obeyed, he angrily ordered his men to fire. The sound of their volley rang out. There were a few shots fired in response, and then the Minutemen scattered, leaving eight of their companions dead upon the village green. This was the shot that was, quote, heard round the world, unquote. The struggle which lasted for eight years had at last begun. Though it did not seem at the time as if the little handful of farmers, who had fired and then fled before the regulars, had done very much after all. But then who does realize that any deed is very great at the beginning? The victorious British, leaving Lexington, marched on to Concord. Others of the Minutemen were there, but they could not stand before the Redcoats, and were speedily dispersed. Then, when the stores had been destroyed, the British prepared to return to Boston. By this time a large force of the Minutemen had been drawn to Concord. Church bells had been ringing, messengers had been sent in every direction, and it seemed as if all the people of the region came up in arms. At first the Redcoats marched along the country road in good order. They had done the duty assigned them, and soon would be back among their comrades, and the Minutemen had been taught a good lesson, or so they believed. But from behind the barns and trees, from the rocks along the roadside, from the very houses themselves, which the returning regulars passed, came the shots of the Minutemen. They were good marksmen, and their aim was deadly. Man after man dropped from the ranks of the British, and no return fire seemed to avail against the concealed men who attacked them. The British lines were not keeping up their orderly march now. Every man was beginning to fear that he was the target of the hidden enemy, and before they had gone as far back on their way as Lexington, they were actually running. Just think of it. British regulars running from a lot of countrymen and farmers. At Lexington, 900 men from Boston with cannon met the retreating redcoats, and under their protection, the wearied soldiers stopped for a brief rest. So completely worn out were they that it is said they cast themselves at full length upon the ground and lay there, quote, with their tongues hanging out of their mouths like dogs after a chase, unquote. As soon as the regulars started again, the Minutemen started after them, 
still firing from behind the sheltering trees and stone walls. Even down to the waterside did the angry countrymen follow their enemies. But as the ships of war were anchored there, the regulars found shelter under their protecting guns. And, as the night drew near, the battle, if battle the struggle might be termed, was ended. Not more than four hundred of the Minutemen had been engaged in the fight at any one time, but so deadly had been their aim that in killed, wounded, and missing, the British loss had amounted to two hundred and seventy-three. The loss of the Minutemen had been variously stated from eighty-eight to one hundred and three. So the revolution had fairly begun, although few realized it at the time. The soldiers of King George had used powder and balls to assert their rights over the rebellious colonists, and the colonists had replied in kind. This was war, and having once begun, neither side was likely to give up until victory should decide the issue of the contest. End of chapter 4